So 11 years ago now, my husband at the time um, told me he was going for a job interview, which I thought was a little strange because he had a job that he seemed to enjoy a lot. And so he flew out to Colorado and uh, never came back. We've all heard stories about life changing in the blink of an eye. What happens when everything you know and are familiar with is just erased in seconds? The phone rings and bang, your new life begins. Because the one that was there before, it's gone. Last October, a very close friend of mine was murdered. He was a police officer in my hometown and was responding to a call, a call he didn't even actually need to respond to. But he was offering support. That's just the kind of guy he was. The call ended up being a hoax, a total setup, a fake domestic violence call, and my friend was shot in the back multiple times walking up the driveway. And then, just like that, he was gone. I started this series in his honor. To say it plainly, I mean, his death was what opened my mind to a whole new paradigm. His passing changed me. It made me look around. The way I see the world and how I treat it now and, and my actions every day. What if this, all of this, was taken away today or tomorrow? It feels like a dark and incomprehensible thing to think about. But the truth is, it's all too common. For my guest today, a phone call during a work meeting in 2012 changed her life instantly. A seemingly quaint existence was suddenly flooded with a darkness that she didn't even know existed prior to that call. I sat down with Dr. Christine Hine, mother, emergency room physician, runner, to discuss how community mindset and marathons helped her continue pushing through even when life seemed to be very determined to push her down. All right, there we go. This is new to me, but like I just I I feel very anxious if I if I'm sitting idle wasting a moment of my day. Yeah. I identify with that feeling, the anxiety of of letting time pass without um capturing all of it. I find that I tend to go like so hard and then maybe every two weeks I need six hours to just chill out a little bit. My best friend tells me all the time, she's like, you just want to pack everything you can into every single minute. And, and it is energizing, I think, for me personally to, to live life that way. It doesn't really make me tired. I just have to recharge every once in a while. Right. So 11 years ago now, my husband at the time um, told me he was going for a job interview, which I thought was a little strange because he had a job that he seemed to enjoy a lot. But um, And so he flew out to Colorado and uh, never, never came back to us. Um, he was actually going to turn himself in. He was being arrested. Um, he had a addiction that I didn't know about to pornography and he got um, arrested and um, 
put on, eventually put on probation and was uh, a registered sex offender. Wow. And yeah, and I was sitting at, in a room at Maine Health in a, um, when I got a call from my father-in-law at the time who was like, uh, Eric's not going to be coming home tonight. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I got a call from him that he lost his um, cell phone and his wallet and he needs to find it before he can fly home. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. He had his passport and like, what's he going to, that just doesn't make any sense. He can go buy a new cell phone and get a new license. And, and so over the course of like the next hour and a half, I unraveled what had happened um, and realized that I was going to be a single mom of three. And it happened, you know, kind of that quickly. Like it was a Tuesday in May of 2012 and life just spun on a dime. And we had known each other since we were in high school. We'd been dating since we were in high school. And I knew he had, he struggled with depression. I had no idea that he had this addiction. Um, and so I, I didn't even, I had to like deal with the kids and like, where did dad go and what happened to him? And, um, also obviously worrying about what he may or may not have done to our children. All these things, um, just came pouring down on me at one time. And so the, the beautiful thing about it was that, um, all of my colleagues at work, nobody really knew what happened. It took a long time for me to really open up and feel like I could share that um, without being judged. Um, but our associate program director at the time knew something bad had happened, didn't know what it was, and arranged for me to have six weeks off from work. All of my colleagues just covered all of my shifts for six weeks. And I got like this incredible time with my kids. Um, so I didn't go back to work until like July, I think. And it was probably the most supportive thing that's ever happened for me because I didn't have to tell anybody. I didn't ask for that. And they just gave me that gift of time to figure out what I was going to do. And so when I came back, I, you know, I used that time to get our family into counseling and to figure out what I was going to do now, how I was going to be a single mom. And um, I have five kids now because since then I've gotten remarried and I have two stepdaughters who are lovely and live with us full time. And I can't imagine my life without them. But it, it, at the time I was like, there will never be a silver lining to this. There will never be anything good that ever comes out of this situation. And I was convinced of that. And time has proven me wrong. Um, it has proven that my kids grew, unfortunately, from that experience. They grew in ways that were incredible. Um, and and I did too, you know. And I think it's actually um, the reason I do the work that I do now for as the well-being person at Maine Med. Um, I, I'm not sure I would have gotten into that if I hadn't gone through that experience myself. I considered myself like the luckiest person ever. Like, I think at that point I had lost one grandparent and that was it. I didn't, nobody had had cancer, you know, right. like there was just right. weren't these big tragedies in my life. And I, I did not see that one coming. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so we ended up getting divorced and then he ended up passing away. Um, he died three years ago. Um, oh my goodness. And so my kids, yeah, he, 
he traded one addiction for another, and, and when he couldn't, you know, engage in internet pornography anymore, he uh, he started drinking pretty heavily, and he ended up falling down the stairs at, at his apartment and God. dying of a head injury. I know it's just, it just, I think about it all the time. Like you were saying, I think about, well, I think about what he gave up because of addiction and like, I mean, our kids are freaking fantabulous human beings and I'm completely biased and I recognize that, but they are like the nicest people. um, And they have such a deep appreciation for the world. And I'm like, he could have been a part of this, but he couldn't. He couldn't um, ask for help, you know, and he just let something that probably could have been managed, his all of his kind of addictive personality, it became the entire side of him, you know, and consumed everything. What a whirlwind of emotions, like something that you did not do yourself, but yet you said something about being, feeling judged as if it was your fault, as if it was your fault. Absolutely. My first instinct was literally to call a counselor and get us into family counseling. But my very next instinct was to change our names and move to Hawaii. Like, (laughs) got to get out of here, cannot be seen or heard from again our lives are over. And I was like, if my life isn't over, my kids' lives are definitely over. Like they will never be able to get out from under the stigma that this is, you know, it, it was paralyzing, um, except for the fact that I can't sit still. So instead of becoming paralyzed, I just, I asked for a lot of help. I see so many people living in autopilot where they they just anticipate mm-hmm. the next day being so perfect and and they just go on with their day yeah. through autopilot. I don't know. Before tragedy strikes, you, you have the ability to be the master of your own fate. My best uh, Ernest Hemingway quote there. You yeah. can make changes yeah. and be happy and do the things that you want to accomplish in this life without having a death or a tragic incident like like you went through. I'm no doctor or psychologist. I, I don't know how to teach people to do mm-hmm. that, to wake up and realize that you only have this one shot at, at life. Yeah, I struggle with that too, because I think that um, it's, it's running that balance between trying to invite people to look a little deeper into how they spend their time and, and how much joy they're finding in that, how much joy they're sharing in the world. Um, and I, I know that you get that as you get older, right? Cause you get a life experience gives you a certain set of skills and wisdom and you do begin to kind of capture that time. I think one way like is to do exactly what you're doing is to share stories that will resonate with people and have them, it peels a little bit of a layer off. I lost a friend, um, a dear, dear friend, one of my closest friends in October. Um, She died of, of stage four colon cancer and she 
the day she was diagnosed and shared it with us, um, I remember her saying, I used to feel bad for little old ladies, and now I wish I was going to be one. And I will never say I'm getting old and I don't want to get old ever again. Because now I think getting old is a privilege. Right. You know? And just hearing Beth say that resonated with me. And obviously I didn't go through what she went through, but her, her words really impacted me. You said it earlier, you have no idea what type of demons people are battling. Everyone puts on this front no. when they walk out the door and a mm-hmm. smile and they mm-hmm. go to work and it's like, something's going on in your world and you might need help or you might need a hug or you might need smiles mm-hmm. or something. That's it. Exactly right there. It's like seeing beyond what people put into the world and knowing that there's so much more to it. Mm. My daughter, my oldest, maybe it was their sophomore year, they do these, I forget what it's called, but it's a whole day and they actually have half the class come one day and half the class come the next day and they do a series of kind of trust building and and like vulnerability exercises um and she was dreading it uh she's she's a very um a little bit reserved until you get to know her and the idea of like going and having to kind of share feelings with people that not weren't her like closest friends was intimidating to her and she came home from it completely different. She was like, that was actually one of the best days I've had in school ever. And the thing that broke it down for her was that they had this exercise called cross the line where they would ask students if you, you know, pretty deeply personal questions. Like if you have ever been verbally abused, cross the line. If you have, they started out with less stuff than that. Like if you fill the class, cross the line, if you blah, 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 cross the line. But they ended up like, if you have someone in your family who's struggling with addiction, cross the line. If you have somebody who's gone to jail, cross the line. If you yourself are struggling, cross the line. And at the end, it was just her and this one other kid left standing. She had no idea. She thought that this student was one of the most popular kids in the class and like had everything all together. She had this whole narrative about him in her mind and then turned out that he had struggles just like everyone else. And she had no idea that they had this kind of shared experience in terms of, you know, unfortunate uh, challenges or obstacles. And it totally opened her up to that, what you were just saying, that when you meet someone, you have no idea what they're going through. I wish they could do that experiment with adults (laughs) because we feel so divided, especially Mm -hmm. now in this culture and that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And we stick to our, Mm -hmm. I don't know, ideologies without like taking that Mm -hmm. next step to Mm -hmm. find out that we're actually more akin to each other than we'll ever take the time to uh, realize. It's absolutely true. And I find myself kind of wanting to lead with that like I don't I don't want to talk about divisive things I don't want to be somebody who puts divisive things out into the world social media is so overused for that Mm -hmm. Um, and I I agree with you that we have many more similarities than we do differences and I'd rather focus on those we're starting a simple rule in our house Uh, it's very very easy and basic all you need to do is be kind to every single Mm -hmm. person you meet 
That's and mm-hmm. that's what I tell my children. Mm-hmm. And it could stop right there. Like yeah. that's it. <laughs> Just awesome. literally be kind is, to every single person you meet. That is so awesome. We kind of have this family rule because there's so many kids. There's usually extra kids around for dinner or whatever. And so the rule is always, there's always room for one more. Like you would never say no to someone for something. You never um, exclude anyone. You know, you just, I was like, because for that very reason of what we're talking about, you never know who's going through something and your kindness might change the course of their day, their month, their life. Could save their life. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to tap into, it has to do with the running. I know you probably get running questions a lot. No, I love running questions. (laughs) But it also pertains to what we're talking about, and it's the difference Mm -hmm. between motivation and discipline. And I've Mm -hmm. always found Mm -hmm. that if, you know, this isn't my quote, but if you did things when you were motivated, nothing would ever get done. (laughs) You would, Mm -hmm. there's a huge Mm -hmm. difference between, okay, I'm not motivated to run, but you're disciplined enough to do it anyway. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that mindset mm-hmm. a, a little bit? And I'm sure there's days yeah, you struggle absolutely. where you don't want to go for a run. Yeah, there are. But but then you do funny little things to, to motivate yourself because, as you said, that's not always there. So I think the discipline piece is huge, and it's about making something become a habit um, and making sure that you – intentionally set time aside the day before. So I do things, I do these little tricks um, that will get me out the door where I put my clothes out the night before for what I'm going to wear. So I see them when I get up, they're right there in my face. Mm. Um, I tend to run early in the morning um, because I have experience uh, at previous times in my life that if I put it off for later in the day, there will always be something that supersedes the importance of going for a run. And so it doesn't happen. And I know how I feel when I don't get to run. Running for me is probably what coffee is for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the way that I clear my head. I think about my, like if I have a problem I'm trying to solve, I will solve it when I'm running. And it's also um, kind of a deeply, I'm I'm not a religious person, but I would say it's a deeply spiritual experience for me and it's a social experience because I run with um, some of my very closest friends probably five mornings a week unless I'm doing a workout and then I'll just run on my own and then I run on my own you know a couple mornings a week I love seeing the sunrise I love knowing what the day is going to be like so I use all of those things to motivate myself to get out there it's not hard for me to be disciplined because I've made it a habit it was hard to get back into the habit of running, but once you get into it with these tricks, combine it with friends, lay out your clothes, make sure that you're thinking about it the night before, how you're going to fit it in and make time for it. It just becomes a part of the day and it's a part of what I do. And I know that it's so much better for me and everybody around me. In 2012, when this happened, that's exactly when running became like a necessary part of every single day. And I hired a coach and I took it to like the next level and I started to really, really try to achieve some some of my lifelong goals with running, which and actually like identify what those goals were and then work to achieve them. I hadn't really crystallized that in my head prior to this happening. I'm sure it gets easier and easier. It absolutely does. I've, I've run every day um, since August of 2020. I'm on this like silly little streak now. So I haven't missed a day. It's awesome. 
<laughs> well, it's like, it's just, a, it's a silly thing, but it's like trying to see, I mean, there's a ton of research that shows that we're only using like 40% of our brain capacity at any one time, and that we have so much more to give than what we actually think. We think we're at our max peak. We're, we're not even close. You're not even close to half. You know? No, not even close. And so my runs are the things that I fall back on in a marathon. I just, I did a, I did a long speed workout this morning and I, as I said, I thought it was like perhaps having a heart attack at the end of my run. And I was like, I'm fine. This is just how it feels when you're really tired. And I pretended that like I had like a lap and a half left on the track to do. And I was like, that's going to be the finish line at Boston someday. And I wouldn't stop if the finish line was a lap and a half away. I'd cross the finish line. So that's what I'm going to do today. And I think that's discipline. I'm working on an essay with Sam Wood right now. And one of our lines in the essay is that we have to remind ourselves every day to earn the trust that's just placed in us when people come into the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And it's true. It's That's what, that's like the heart of, of helping others is making sure that you're showing up and you're not making assumptions that you are actively trying to earn somebody's trust, even though they're automatically giving it to you at the door because they're in a moment of need and people can endure so much. Um, I've learned to never say never, you know, particularly when I'm talking with families and they have a loved one who's really critically ill. Um, I'm not giving them false hope, but I, I like to let people know that there is, a chance unless there really isn't, in which case it's our job um, to be clear about sure, that. Sure, sure. Uh, but having a, that solid mindset of I can do this and I'll get through this or I'll, I'll survive or I'll finish that race or I'll whatever course change that yeah. you're talking about, uh, yeah. you, can act, yeah. you can do it if you put your mind to it. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah, you absolutely can. And I guess that's one thing going back to kind of where we started, like I remember that night um, that Tuesday in May of 2012 that walking up the stairs that night, one of my kids had a fever or something. And this is like three or four hours after I had gotten this phone call that turned everything into a tailspin. And so I was bringing them some ibuprofen and I was like, okay, this is what we do now. It's just me and the ibuprofen. And that's how it's going to be for a while. And I can do this. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't, doubt that I could do it. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> that was not what I was choosing. <laughs> but I I knew that I could I could get through it. I will say my colleagues helping me with that time is is a big part of why I still practice emergency medicine because if I had to choose one being a parent and taking care of my kids or my career, I would have chosen my children 10 out of 10 times. I was going to say any parent would. Any parent yeah, would. So that's amazing. So they gave me that gift of not having to make that choice, you know? Right, right. That's amazing. One moment, everything is fine. And the next thing you know, you're in a full tailspin, trying to understand where it all went wrong. How did you get here? You're angry, you're broken, you're lost. You're aiming blame everywhere. You're grasping for anything solid. But eventually, over time, the spinning begins to slow. Things start to look a little clearer. You can take a look around, reevaluate, start to process little by little. Like with running, 
your only option is to put one foot in front of the other. You move forward. And you may fall, you may veer off course, but you're always moving forward towards whatever is next. Because often there will be a next. I've heard people say, don't run away from your problems. But maybe that's wrong. Maybe running through the storm gets you through it faster and you end up on the other side with a clearer picture and a clearer mindset of what actually happened to you. I'd like to thank Christine for having the courage to share her story with me and with all of you. I want to thank you for listening to the Changing Course podcast. If you want to follow the Changing Course journey, please visit www.changingcourse.com or check me out on Instagram at change.in.course. We're accepting donations and the proceeds pay for the production of this series. And for details on how to donate, check the show notes. The Changing Course podcast is produced by Nonsensible Productions. Just remember, we're all doing this thing differently. Be kind to each other. And as my oldest daughter likes to tell me, think smart. Until next time, later. I got to answer this phone call. Is that all right? Hello, this is Nate. All right. My truck's ready.